Welcome to Super Urbanism. Today we are talking to the author Will Wiles about weird stories. Machine Books, who publishes this podcast, has just released a book called The Machine Book of Weird, which is a collection of short stories from around 100 years ago that all meditate on the idea of being inside. These are tales by authors like H.G. Wells, Saki, H.P. Lovecraft, and others. They were all brought together during lockdown, something of a lockdown project, as a meditation on our condition. Will was kind enough to suggest several stories for inclusion in that, and he even wrote an intro to one of them. But I wanted to talk to Will about more, because he is also a writer about architecture. He's a columnist for the RIBA Journal, no less. I wanted to speak to him about the connections between his writing and the writing compiled in that book. About the connections between architecture and literature, between the outer world and the inner one. So as a way of introducing, I thought I'd ask Will to read from his new collections of short stories called The Anechoic Chamber. Here he is, reading from the titular story. The room was not large, a master bedroom at best, and its decoration made it feel smaller. Although, Justin reminded himself, this was not decoration. Everything was functional, and its function was silence. The walls and ceiling were lined with panels covered in acute wedges of black foam, packed in tightly in alternating checker pattern, giving every surface a deep, spiked waffle texture. The floor was a thin metal grill, suspended above another layer of the wedged black foam. Light came from deeply recessed but dazzling LED spots. In the middle of the chamber was a mounting for equipment, but other than that it was empty. The air was cool and tanged with the chemical signature of new materials. Justin could see why some people might be unnerved by the space. The sharp blades of the foam wedges and their tactical matte black gave the whole environment the spirit of a weapon. Noor entered with him and shut the door, a complicated two-stage operation involving swinging it closed and then pulling it in so the foam panels it was lined with joined the rest of the wall. The room was quiet, that was certain, very quiet. Wow, Justin said, and then frowned at his own voice. Wow, he repeated, listening. Wow. Noor smiled at him. She said, It's a bit freaky. No reflected sound. When we speak, we're used to hearing our own words bounce back at us, and every other sound we hear. Sound doesn't end at source. It hangs around a while. It has an afterlife. But not here. The shaped insulation absorbs it all. Nothing can escape, and there are no other hard surfaces. Justin towed at the metal grill. Apart from this... Actually, it's near transparent to sound, she said. But you're right, it does make a difference, so we retract it during tests. You're not in here during tests? She looked appalled. No, not unless someone has to be. Like I said, Mr. Immerman, we're very noisy beasts. We'll be in the booth. You really wouldn't want to be in here during a test. She wrapped her arms around her as if cold. May I try it, he asked. And he tried to sound casual about it. On my own? If you like, Noah said uncertainly, for a minute... It's perfectly safe, after all. The effect is all in your head. Fine, he said with a smile. For a minute, she operated the door, and it slid backwards and outwards. If you want to come out for any reason, just wave your arms. I'll be watching on the camera outside. As she exited, Justin was gripped by a strange impatience. Everything about her actions was too slow. The door was too slow. Once it had finally closed on her, he was alone. And he was alone. He felt a wash with relief. He let the silence engulf him. It was beautiful in a way. How much of life is being, was being comforted by the echo of our own sounds and actions, reminding us that we exist. 
Instead of making noise, he tried being quiet, being really quiet, and he realised how loud he really was. His body was a roaring foundry of noise. Every breath rasped in his throat and whistled in his nose, and he could hear the thumping, squishing pump of his heart and the rush of blood pushing through the passages around his ears. His digestive system was as raucous and sinister as a rainforest night. Still and calm, the breathing slowed and stopped. Justin's pulse dropped, and he realised that he had been excited. He became very conscious of his ears and the fleshy, gimcrack structures within, the imperfect mechanism which sensed sound. My name is Will Wiles. I'm an author and journalist, and that was a reading from The Anechoic Chamber, which is one of a series of short stories that is going to be published in a collection in August 2024. During the first lockdown, I had recently published my third literary novel, Plume, which had the incredible misfortune to come out in paperback in March 2020, just to the point that all the bookshops in the world closed. And I had finished writing my fourth novel, which is my first fantasy novel, The Last Blade Priest. And so that was complete, but ahead of publication. So I had no, no long-form writing projects on my desk, and I felt like I should get something started. And I couldn't. This brain fog set in, as I think it did for a lot of people. And I was spending time with my children and going on walks with them and enjoying the eerie, empty city, but couldn't do any work, which was quite distressing in a way because I've been working continuously for a long time. So I started working on short projects, thinking that it would be a better way to focus. And I've always enjoyed reading ghost stories, weird tales, M.R. James, that kind of thing. And I sat down and wrote title pages for all of them. I polished up other projects that I'd begun and not finished. And weird tales became the the motif of the term, lockdown, basically. Um, uh, why they're all weird, I think, just reflects my reading habits. It's That's the kind of short story that I particularly enjoy. Um, it's entirely down to your reading habits. One might suggest that there's a certain condition in which you were in which might speak to that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A bit coincidental in the sense of not really coincidental at all. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. An awful lot of weird tales and ghost stories are all about taking people out of normal circumstances and putting them into something bizarre, isn't it? And that's exactly what happened to us all. And I think one horrifying but also quite revealing and interesting part of lockdown was the way it revealed our homes to us. We were suddenly obliged to spend all our time there and and had our families around us, or, or in some cases not. And the very familiar was revealed by by not being given an alternative to it. In my first novel, In Care of Wooden Floors, I say that any space is only made tolerable by the ability to leave it, and that was briefly taken away from us all. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I thought <laughs> it would be good to speak to you, that general uh, feeling of enclosure. It's interesting that you talk about your personal reading inevitably ended in writing stories of that nature and them somehow speaking to lockdown there being a serendipitous aspect to that. Tell me more about the, the authors that you've liked. Perhaps we could first start with 
the yellow wallpaper because that's one of the stories that you, that you recommended for the Machine Book of Weird and that, that, that we then included. Can you remember when you first came across that story? Quite early on in my teens, I read a lot of H.P. Lovecraft and he wrote an essay called Supernatural Horror in Literature, which is in one of the collections of his stories. And that is uh, a tremendous a kind of compendium of stuff. You, if you like this, you might want to try this. And so that introduced me to authors like William Hope Hodgson and Lord Dunsany and and I think probably Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who was uh, an author who he greatly admired. You read The Yellow Wallpaper, it is immediately obvious what makes it such a classic. It's an extraordinarily claustrophobic and atmospheric and gripping story of of obsession and paranoia and madness and it's very lockdown appropriate as well it's a woman who's been shut up in a room for her own health and it's slowly destroying her and i think that anyone who reads it it, it stays with them it's a profound I think it's a landmark in short fiction in general, not just in, in ghost stories and eerie tales. Very interesting you should talk about Lovecraft. He's one of the other authors that we've that's compiled and weird. An author which, if you write in this field, you have to address and think about because he was so exceptional in creating extreme feelings of horror and weirdness and disassociation and alienation in, in domestic spaces or interior spaces. That somehow you're immediately adjacent to something wild and horrific and terrifying. It sounds like you've read his work quite, quite a lot. When did you read him and what did you think of him? I bought a copy of a Panther edition of The Lurking Fear at a school school jumble sale, age 10? Hugely, hugely inappropriate age, but it had a very like atmospheric cover and I thought it looked like, and it's probably like 10 pence or something, and I've still got the copy. It, and it just, the first story I read in it, because it was the shortest story in it, and I was still a fairly intermediate reader, was Cool Air which is about a man in a boarding house whose neighbour keeps his apartment very close and very cool, very cold, and, and this is, creates a marvellous sense of mystery. And that, that pretty much had me hooked, and he's a, an author I've read uh, several times over and uh, um, have written about. He's a, he's, a, he's a hugely problematic author, and I think it's worthwhile confronting that right on, because he was, he was virulently racist and unpleasant in his views and anti-semitic and so on and an awful lot of the and we we need to understand people in the context of the time but even in the context of the time he's a an absolute swine he's a nightmare and you think oh yes there's definitely some racism in the stories i know i'll i think i'll read the letters to to contextualize that and understand it better and you read the letters and you realize he's toning it down in the stories and it's he's a real nightmare and that that's a vital part of kind of understanding where the sort of horror boils up in inside him i think it's this sort of so he's he's a kind of rather embarrassing influence to admit to there are certainly better influences like mr james and so on who managed to create fantastic tales of unease and eeriness without the quite the same horrifying politics and Gilman and others, Freeman and, and Dunsany and so on, he really stands out, Lovecraft does, not only for the sort of extraordinary virulence of his creation, but also the sort of nightmarishness of his views. Yeah, he's a kind of... But it's a very interesting point that you make, that, that it's not a prerequisite for... <laughs> just like to heads up... Yeah, 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 that's right. You don't yeah. have to be a massive racist no, no, to no. create really strange and unsettling places. 
No, absolutely. No, and indeed it's as Gilman shows and as many other authors since, including authors working today, it's actually a tremendous kind of way of... It can be very progressive fiction. There's a a tremendous... um, horror author called Alison Rumford who, who has written an absolutely ghastly, um, in the best sense uh, novel um, called Me, Tell Me I'm Worthless, which kind of explores transphobia and things like that. And it's as ever uh, there's no there's no tram rails for the politics of a particular genre. You know, you can do what you like with it. And the literature of creepiness and weirdness and strangeness and unease is obviously just the most tremendous terror for, for getting into the the tells we have as people, as, as human beings. Um, it's provocative and magical territory. What do you mean by tells? What makes us uneasy, what disgusts us, what scares us, we don't choose those things. They are within, they're revealing. They, they show something that's bubbling up from, from inside, something atavistic. And so if you identify what's making us uneasy and what's making, sorry, what's making us is too inclusive a term, what's making you, the individual author, uneasy and, and start interrogating that, then you can be onto something, something quite productive creatively. You're getting close to the sort of the lizard cortex and is an intensely personal experience but also speaks to something shared. Give me some little descriptions of the short stories, the other short stories in the in the collection. So there's one one story called the Anechoic Chamber. The Anechoic Chamber, yeah, that's in the which title someone story. you've given us an insight, someone is in it. We, we don't need to know any more, no, no spoilers, but perhaps you could tell me about some of the other stories. Yeah, one which was very lockdown-focused uh, is The Meat Stream, which was about um, people uh, being stuck in there. It is set during the lockdown. It's the only one that's actually set during the lockdown, in fact. And that's people being stuck in their apartment and getting really into the nooks and crannies of the streaming services and finding one that's nothing but images of cooked, glistening meat, which, after a time, begins to ooze out of the television with a sort of cronenberg feel to it. That was so. That's the the most lockdown why story. That doesn't. It's also, I think, the most kind of horror, obviously horror story to do with meat and being trapped and so on. There are some stories that are in the more sort of classic mould along the lines of the authors I've mentioned. There's set in in the in the, in the past and so on. There's one about, but which is I I think has an M.R. Jamesy kind of feeling about a Roman mosaic, uh, a dismantled Roman mosaic. People don't know what it is. They just got the tiles. It's called Tesserae. This sounds excellent. You wrote an essay for Yon a wee while ago now, but it stuck very much in my recollection because I think you question some of the tropes of psychogeography as a literary vehicle. And, and I just remember you at the end saying that you've located yourself in your desk and that, that this was the site of the writerly imagination. Am I mischaracterising it? Am I misremembering it? Or am I miscasting it to suit my current current fixation with short stories? <laughs> it was. It came out of a... Oh, God, there's no other way of putting this, but a sort of journey as a kind of... <laughs> as a thinker or writer. The, one of those journeys you always talk about, let me take you on a journey. Where, when I was uh, wanting to be a writer, we're informed by the stuff we, we admire. That's the stuff we want to produce. To admire something is to want to reproduce it in a way. You don't reprodu- want to reproduce stuff you don't admire. And I enjoyed reading Will Self and Ian Sinclair and, and Peter Aykroyd and that kind of classic psychogeography stuff that came up during the 90s and in the early 2000s. And so uh, this was 
really, yeah, this is what I want to be doing. This is original writing about the city. This is getting under the skin of all the bullshit and tapping into something fundamental. As I went on, and as time went on, without my admiration for those writers really diminishing, I began to feel that they had proven inadequate to countering capitalism, which had come for them in the in the sense that what they had tapped into was their efforts to get the, the authentic city. What made me give this thought, I was writing about marketing suites for um, uh, luxury property developers uh, and um, the uh, kind of like show apartments that are made um, uh, to um, advertise new housing developments. And I was looking at the... Um, the bookshelves in these places and they had all these authors on them. They had Will Self and Ian Sinclair, London Orbital, and they had Monica Ali, Brick Lane and London The Biography and this everything you'd expect, the sort of 20, 30 something Londoner of that time, this is about 10 or 15 years ago, to have on their shelves and they're using this stuff to market to a demographic. And I thought, that was that was like a bit of an eye-opening moment, and that led directly to my third novel, Plume, which was, which is about a psychogeographical author, someone who's written these sort of like dark and gritty novels about the city, who has this similar kind of moment of waking up, and realizes that he's been recuperated by the forces of marketing, and what he does as a result, which is essentially go mad. <laughs> so these sort of these forces have been around in my thinking for a while. Yeah. I haven't resolved it. <laughs> no, but I think it's a very interesting moment. I think you... I found it a really compelling argument. I think it was when I read Hackney, The Red Rose Empire by Sinclair, and they interviewed him, and I said, do you know that architect character? Who is that? <laughs> and he went, I totally made him up. Mm. And he made up, made, made, made up this completely, insanely dippy architect in a, in a, in a, in a, in a story that's effectively a realist account of the forces that are changing Hackney and but one of the kind of key real people is just total fiction. From a different perspective to you, I found the where the artifice was and my 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 issue became like and I think in some ways I can see it in your work and the in things that you become interested in is that there's a relationship between realism and artifice and it relates almost to finding these marketing sweet spaces more compelling and more truthful <laughs> than this constant unearthing through the undergrowth to find the real city. And, and so, and when lockdown happened, it came from just like a wanting to find literature that spoke to the condition that I was in. I wasn't, as a reader, as opposed to a writer, I couldn't read the things I normally read. And I found these things and I was like, this, it was like they were like a drug almost. I was like literally emailing you, other people, other contributors to the book, going, "Tell me about, this, tell me about. I need more of these things." And reading them in that way, so I, I really that sense of the, the false space being the truthful space, which is something that really came over in the short story that you were that you began with the name I still will struggle to pronounce. I felt really, <laughs> I really fell for the I really felt that yeah the the truthful space is the false space kind of quality to it. Oh, a marketing suite is very like an echo chamber. It's a, an environment that's very specifically tuned to producing one particular effect. Then they are fascinating spaces. I remember I read some years ago, and I wrote an essay on the basis of it, but a critic wrote about the need for British fiction to look beyond the bland Tescopolises. And I thought, 
that was completely backwards. I thought the bland Tescopolises were exactly where we should be going, and that was the heart of darkness, and that was exactly what we should be thinking about. It was a writer who's absolutely fundamental in my in my admiration. I, I, I think yours as well is, is J.G. Ballard, who said that the, the, next, the next prophet wasn't going to come out of the desert, but out of the shopping malls and car parks. And that's, I think, that's absolutely, absolutely the case. I think it's these environments of extreme um, uh, blands and apparent thoughtlessness that are, in fact, the products of intense thought are hugely interesting spaces. This is exactly what I wrote about in my second novel, um, The Way In, about chain hotels and conference centres and so on, which are places, a chain hotel is a place that you, you're not really meant to think about. You're meant to just be comfortable there. It's this bizarre combination between the homely and the uh, anodyne corporate space in that you really, is, it's designed to give you as little to think about as possible. That's what you want. You just want to like have something that isn't going to trouble you too much. And that's a creepy kind of, it aims to appear thoughtless, but it's a product of intense refinement and thought. Yeah. The interior space is often the thing that, that, that has attracted you from your first novel onwards. It's the thing which I find compelling about your work and your criticism is that, that you've got such a handle on that interior world. Rather than the psychogeographies that you refer to, uh, which spoke to lockdown particularly, it is the question that we all as readers have with writers. To what degree did you want to say something about lockdown in this kind of collection of short stories? I'm not sure I say anything about it directly. I dare say there's a kind of subconscious saying something about it. I don't think that's necessarily a very useful answer for you, I'm afraid. It's still a work in progress in the sense that I still haven't quite decided what's in and what's out. It definitely includes the, the old and the new. switched the filter on the fish tank off just so there wasn't any background noise. Not quite an anechoic chamber. Um, poor fishies have stopped moving. Bunch of fish. No, they're all right, I think. I just thought one was very floating no, very no, near no, the no, surface. No, no, I wanted no, no, to go no, make sure no, it was breathing. Don't want to kill the fish. Don't want to kill They should be fine for a lot longer than... They should be fine for 48 hours without the um, filter on. Um, this is a fine, very fine piece of architecture we invested in in, in their uh, the ruin. <laughs> That's really <laughs> nice. Somewhere to give them somewhere to hide. It's the most incredible kind of. I'd like to write an essay about it sometime. The uh, fish tank things you can get. You look on Amazon for things, and it's all made out of resin in Chinese factories. Harry Potter's had a lot of influence on the fish tank castle. I think it's when you finally do a, a proper architectural taxonomy of it. I think you have to do it before Harry Potter and after Harry Potter because they all look like. Uh, the films. What grabbed you about this particular ruin? It was not Harry Potter and it was not Neuschwanstein. It was a bit more interesting than that and it was a good fit for the tank. Fundamentally the demands of the site had much... It had to be small. <laughs> yeah, but also at the same time not too small. Not too small, yeah. It's got, I don't, I don't want to start waxing lyrical, but there's something of the Tintin Abbey to it. There's something slightly Wordsworthian about it. Yeah, and that's definitely a kind of designed folly, isn't it? It never had any purpose, but it's there to be appropriately ruined, which is relevant to our topic of conversation, it isn't is. it? The, and um, the, fi uh, the fish like it? 
Yeah, they like hanging out inside here. It gives them places. They like to be private at times. Sometimes they like to strut about, and sometimes they like to go off and be private. And I think they like to have overhangs. They seem to like being un- underneath things. They, they were, seemed a bit a bit edgy before they had something to hide in, and now they're much more happy. That's good. That's good. Um, <laughs> That's um, this is what the podcast should be. It should be Will and, Will and Tim's Fish Tank Architecture Review. Um, it would have to be very much led by you. <laughs> I don't feel. Anyway, let's get back to the let's get back to the um, topics. No, I, I think that was very much on topic. There's a host of writers that you've mentioned that, and I think it's interesting about Ballard because I definitely felt that I was reading the authors that. We ended up being collected into the to the machine book of weird. I was reading them through Ballard somehow. It's impossible to read these things again without his kind of base baseline influence. And obviously, he would. He's he's not out of copyright, so we couldn't <laughs> include him. But yeah. I'm not that we would have anyway, because I think he's he's a different historical period. Yeah. But it was very interesting that that I felt that a kind of subsequent I think I wrote in the essay of introduction that, that, that kind of ended with thinking about it through his these the stories through his his eyes he did do a tremendous line in the eerie stories that would have like the enormous space a man trapped in his house and the house steadily expands around him becoming this uncrossable desert and that sort of thing He's, there's, there's stories that, despite being of an identifiably different era fit into that sort of tradition I think yeah, the the the, 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 the kind of vastness within smallness. Hmm. It's very strange. There's a quote from G.K. Chesterton. It's such a strange line. He says, "The biggest joke of all is a house is bigger on the inside than it appears from outside." Hmm. He just says it as this throwaway mark, a remark in the middle of in the middle of nowhere. They even have this kind of person who was rejected was such of faith very closely his, his faith was his Christian faith determined much of what he said he was able to articulate these just insights into the condition of modernity arriving in mm. uh, in and one of the reasons why I think these these stories are historically pertinent is because there's this sense of Darwinianism, Marxism, beginning to leaving the kind of lecture halls and the barricades and beginning to inform people's understanding of their world and their lives. Mm. And feminism being being one of sudden revelation, there's a suddenly seeing the bars on the window, suddenly understanding and being able to, through, through these liberatory messages, look at the domestic space and see them as rather than this uh, benign environment suddenly they're 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 the averse and that's the quality that i think makes them although for very different historical purposes pertinent to the the lockdown it's suddenly like yeah with lockdown as you've said it's about i can't leave i'm beginning to understand that but from a different historical moment and a different self-controlling circumstances but still the social control even mm. if it's to so you don't die <laughs> well, I think one one interesting kind of like quality of the stories of that period is the fact that it comes 
from a time in the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century where writers, artists were waking up to the, the dominance of mankind, as it were, the fact that mankind had achieved mastery of the world. Yeah. There's a, a fantastic book called The Triumph of Human Empire by Rosalind Williams about Verne and Wells and so on, and how this sudden sense that there were no more mysteries, that the world had been fully exposed, informed their fiction of around the world in 80 days and all that tremendous early science fiction and I think that kind of gets to the uh, heart of quite a lot of this that sort of unsettling sense of of man in its sort of horrifying naivety obtaining the power of the gods almost over its own planet. God, having praised Lovecraft, if I mention Nietzsche, that's um, really going to get me cancelled. But um, <laughs> but that's the sort of thing. And I think yeah. that speaks a lot to us nowadays because of our because of our surrounding ever-present ecological crisis and, and concern. This sense that not only have we achieved mastery, we might have, we might have truly bucketed up as well, ir- irrevocably. I feel that ecological unease isn't something that particularly figures in the short stories that I've written, although I think in a way it figures in everything that's written now in a weird way, but how could it not? One can say that every generation has its doomsdays. Yeah. And not to belittle it, not to suggest anything other than that is tends to have been the way it's gone. Mm. From the 50s to the 80s, there's nuclear Armageddon, which was a genuine threat, a a real thing to be worried about. And the fact that it didn't actually transpire doesn't make it any less of a a problem even today. We should probably be a bit more worried about it. More nuclear doomsday scenarios, less ecological doomsday scenarios. Clarity for doomsday scenarios. Fortunately, we've got plenty to... They've already done quite a lot, so we don't need to produce new ones necessarily. We can just go and reread a canticle fully bored somewhere. We're sitting in my kitchen and dining room, which is at the rear of a fairly typical London terraced house. And it was a house that we bought in a very dilapidated state in February 2020, was when we completed on it, just before the entire world shut down, which was a bit of a disaster in terms of uh, trying to get things like planning permission and construction sorted out and um, caused horrifying delays. So it was only completed this time last year. And even then, because of the price of everything shooting up, we were only able to do half of it, the rear half, which is the nice half we're sitting in. So it's a a house of two halves at the moment with a kind of ugly front and an attractive back. But it was designed by Charles Holland, the postmodern architect, who was one of the founders of FAT, and has round windows, like porthole windows, and pink walls and things, which we wanted a sort of space that was different to this sort of open-plan space that was typical of London refurbishment projects, and had, instead of variety of spaces, zones and spaces. So it's got a courtyard in the middle of it that puts light into the middle of the house. And one problem with extending terraced houses out the back is they create very dark zones in the middle. And so we've inserted this light well, which has got a double height area. We, I say, Charles designed, contractors built, I admired from a distance, and an office for me to work in. And yeah, these round windows, it's got three round windows which are aligned in a sequence, like a kind of stargate 
and they're bright yellow as well. They have this uh, rather cheerful yellow colour. You get light through both sides of both of the rooms, which is pretty remarkable, really, for a small space. Um, even though we didn't go for the open plan and the big glazed wall and bifold doors and so on, it still gets a fair amount of light into it. And if you look above you, there's a stained glass window. Um, that had to be that overlooks our neighbours, obviously, so it had to be. Uh, privacy glass and so we had stained glass rather than textured glass and there's a kind of double height area. There's a, a Juliet balcony up on the first floor. Yeah that's right that's our sort of wild west saloon space or <laughs> as my wife sometimes calls it the shouting hole where you summon the children. If you lean over or you shout up. Or <laughs> shout up to bring them down for dinner or whatever. Shouting hole. Have you home, or you say it's for communication between floors. Yeah no, that's, that's the, the architectural language. Uh, and it has these, uh, in terms of uh, the touch of the area, has these jib doors um, which um, conceal uh, spaces. And there's a laundry and um, uh, toilet and utility spaces along the wall and so on that are slightly uh, hidden by the mouldings and so on. I love um, the terrazzo floors. Yeah, and uh, speckled terrazzo floor and speckled kitchen surfaces and things. Uh, so a lot of it is Charles Holland being quite intelligent with relatively inexpensive things fairly typical Ikea cabinets but with colourful fronts on them and recycled plastic surface and the plainest white tiles you can imagine but given a bit of interest with a blue grout and so on. He was very intelligent about producing a quite unusual result on an extremely constrained budget. Um, pictures of it have been on Dazine or whatever from there. So you can't, you can't remember how many put magazines El Deco Italia was my favourite oh, uh, for the oh. for the bragging rights. El Deco Italia, <laughs> Jesus Christ! I'm surprised you even let me in. It's a shame there's no money in it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. and, I mean, it's the, it's You're the... used to stuff appearing in magazines and getting a paycheck out of it. <laughs> this is a bit from The Way In, which is my second novel, published by Fourth Estate in. 2014. It's about a man whose business is to go to business conferences and he spends his life living in chain hotels, which is which he adores to an unhealthy degree. This is the life that's perfectly made for him. A lot of it is about the, the highly designed but deliberately invisible environment of chain hotels, which are rep- replicated globally, but also designed to be inconspicuous, so that guests aren't supposed to think about them too much. And they tend to have a lot of furniture in them that isn't, it's not entirely clear if it's meant to be used or not, like armchairs next to lifts and so on. It becomes very hard to imagine anyone wanting to sit in a place. And he has a sort of idea of hotel time and making proper use of these spaces. And that's what this, is, this extract dwells on. He's waiting in the hotel lobby. The wait was also high-grade hotel time, an opportunity to really enjoy the lobby, which was, after all, designed for this purpose. It felt good to be performing the appropriate rite in the appropriate venue, especially an underrated venue like a hotel reception. True, it was a space to be passed through, not a space to really be in, to inhabit or somehow make make significant, not a place to labour or decide or worship or build or fall in love or whatever acts we are supposed to perform in other, more authentic places. But what made those other places so special? So here I was, waiting for a taxi in the lobby of a chain hotel on a motorway. Daily newspapers were laid out for my appreciation, and I appreciated the courtesy without feeling the need to pick any of them up. I might, if time permitted, order a coffee, brewed with pride, according to a sign, by a global franchise. 
I was not carving a turkey on Christmas Day or writing a sonnet or casting a bowl on a potter's wheel, and while those activities might be more enjoyable and memorable than my present occupation, were they really any more authentic? This ranking of places baffled me. I was still human, still engaged in a task. I do not know if I possess such a thing as a soul, but if I, I did not imagine that it deserts me when I arrive at the business hotel, the convention centre, the airport terminal. So these places were bland, all alike and unmemorable. There was value to deliberately there was value to deliberately forgettable environments. They were efficient, spiritually thrifty, requiring little heed and little mindfulness. They were hygienic in that way, aseptic. Nothing from them would linger with you. Fantastic. Well, Wiles, incredibly interesting chap, a gentleman and a scholar, and a great writer too. I suggest if you want to keep up to date with what Will does, you go to his um, tiny letter, which is like a substack page, tinyletter.com slash Will Wiles, capital W, capital W. If you want to know any more about Machine Book of Weird, and I strongly suggest that you do, which uh, Will has contributed to, you go to www.machinebooks.co.uk. You can order the print book online there. Great read. Some of the stories that Will and I talked about are in there. Get online, get it ordered, have your mind expanded, contracted, then expanded again. We'll be talking to another William Will next week. William Mann, architect, part of the Sterling Prize winning practice, Witherford Watson Mann, about their latest project, which is a almshouse in Bermondsey, which has just opened. Really beautiful bit of architecture, but um, more coming your way. Go to your favourite podcast producer. Not SoundCloud, though. They charge us, so we don't go with them. Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, all those ones. Yeah. Subscribe. Like and subscribe. Tell everyone what a great podcast this is, because it is really, really good. We talk to loads of interesting people. We ask them about their ideas, and we let them explain themselves. It's a great way of approaching things, don't you think? No concept other than other people. Get on it. Bye.